Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. The New Yorker magazine is having a momentous year. 2015 marks its 90th anniversary, and the year it moved offices from Times Square to One World Trade Center. David Remnick became the magazine's editor almost 20 years ago when Tina Brown named him as her successor. Remnick, who first started as a staff writer, continues to report and write profiles. Everybody has a cartoon of themselves, says Remnick. Mine is, I write very fast, and I'm ruthlessly efficient with my time. He's written six books and edited more than his share of anthologies. It's no surprise that David Remnick carefully considers how he spends his day. I'm very wary of not consuming time unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the, Managing your that's, time is critical. That's the, the modern battle. Well, not to eat it up with what ends up being crap. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of friends who use Twitter and are on Twitter and are tweeting during the day and, you know, lead meaningful yeah. lives, yeah. present company included. Yeah. Yes. Well, but and, I, I, and, and I've amended that. You know, I, I do it far less than I used to. Right. But what I found for, with people in jobs like mine who were tweeting, they did one of two things and they both seem mistaken. One is that they use it as a promotional vehicle. And mm-hmm. they say, we, you know, uh, we have a really swell piece on blah. And then three days would go by. We have a Jerry real, Adams. We have a, <laughs> we have a great piece on da da And that's not what Twitter's for. There you're not joining any conversation. You're just, you know, you're just showing your backside. You're, you're, you're advertising. That's one kind of mistake. The other kind is the inadvertent overshare that you then spend weeks cleaning up after, right. after your own elephant. And I didn't want to do that either. I figured that I had enough of a platform, either implicitly as an editor or explicitly as a writer, and once in a while to talk with somebody like you or go on television or whatever once in a blue moon. And, and that was enough. I... I think that's the right decision for me. When you, Not that uh, the world is shaking in, in, in desire for, for, for me to tweet. 
I love this quote. Michael Spector says, the only person he knows who watches more television than Remnick is his own ex-wife, Alessandra <laughs> Stanley, the TV critic for the New York Times. He remembers calling Remnick one of their favorites. The BBC version of Le Carre, Smiley's People, came out on DVD. I said, are you watching it? And Remnick said, yes. He was writing a piece. He said, I said, I'm giving myself three hours of writing, one hour of Smiley. I think that may have been the best thing I've ever seen on television. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Alec... Get, oh, certainly in the highbrow area. I mean, Alec Guinness playing Smiley in Tinker Taylor and then Smiley's People is, yeah, that was heaven. The, so, so you wake up in the morning and how do you plug in? What do you do? I mean, for news and things like that. I, look, the, in general, the in New media. York, the New York Times, I, either because it just is or because out of force of habit, is, is the weather that we live in in terms of what's going on in the world. And that's, I, I think, never more so than now, despite the profusion of all the websites that you and I could both name and maybe overlap on, Medium, Vox, whatever it is, or Slate, or whatever rings your bell. But for me, the New York Times, as a news-gathering organization, is still the most ambitious. It just is. And so I'm not going to miss that. What would you like to see them do better? Well, where I think they're holding up the the store is on things like international news where it's just getting worse and worse. There are fewer and fewer places of ambition that can cover the world. I'd like to see the cultural coverage be a little different. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, really? (laughs) I I think it could be as ambitious in certain areas as as the international coverage of political coverage. There's things that they cover in pop culture. I sit there, I, I go... They put that on the front page of the art section of the New York Times. Oh, I think that's okay, though. I think you do. So, I, yeah, I do. I think I th- it's it's important for somebody who's my age to remember that Kanye West is for his audience, and I'm part of his audience. What Bob Dylan was for Bob Dylan's audience thirty years ago. Pop culture is something that you're never going to love as acutely, especially in music. When you were young, as when the pheromones were just right, flying right, right. through. When, that, you. when those songs meant something to you. Yeah. And so, as somebody who still goes to see the Bobster and uh, and others, and it still means everything to me. It's I, so I don't mind seeing those things on the front uh-huh. page because I know he's someone's Bobster. You bet, right? You bet. So that's okay. Now, with what you do there, is it more management and you're involved in finances and marketing and the move downtown and so forth, or is it just mostly editing? It's all of it. It, it has to be all of it. Right. Look. My job is week to week and month to month, but it also has to have some sense of what, where we're going, what we're about, who we are, what our internal moral, journalistic, literary purposes in the world. And I have to think about X years from now, and I hope it's a lot of years from now, where I hand off this thing in shape in every sense, mm-hmm. that, it, that it means what it should mean but it's also financially healthy. What kind of shape was the magazine in, or how would you describe the magazine when you took over? It was losing money. Mm-hmm. I don't say that, you know, to pound my chest, but it was losing mm-hmm. money. It was going through a hard Why time. Why do you think it was? Because she was very pop culture-centric. It wasn't about that. Yeah. I, think, I think it was a, the peak of advertising for The New Yorker was in the late 60s. It, and it's why, Alec, when we think, you know, we make a cartoon of certain periods of certain things. The reason there were four-part series that weren't so interesting sometimes was because they needed the editorial matter to put next to the ads. It was that rich. 
And there's, you know, contrary to popular belief, there's just so much great writing out there. <laughs> you know, advertising began to decline, and yet we were charging a minuscule amount for the, for the magazine. You know, and my feeling is you should be able to charge each week for the New Yorker maybe even as much as a cup of Starbucks. Right. Or half of what a movie costs. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So now we do. Are we as good as a movie? <laughs> or a bad movie. And, and now we do. And together with advertising, it's a very healthy business. And we try to pay writers decently. Um, and is that a struggle? Well, we need a lot of good stuff. We come out every week, and now we come out every second. And I don't want to see any diminution in, in, in quality just because it's just the web. I don't well, accept I'm not, that. I'm not saying this for you to be kind. I mean, you obviously have great writers. And, and, no, and, 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 but you how, want to pay them decently. And, and how do you compare? Like, who's paying the most money in your field right now? Well, Who, Who's sitting up there and just throwing money at people? Nobody's throwing. Nobody, nobody's, nobody. nobody's an idiot. Nobody's in it. So you're competitive. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And is, if somebody comes to us from the New York Times, say, uh, you know, Dexter Filkins comes from the New York Times to the New Yorker. He's not going to come for less. What he's doing is coming mainly to do something different. I think that's the main attraction. I, that's what happened with me. I was a newspaper reporter. I wanted to do something different. I'd been, I had the best newspaper job in the history of the second half of the 20th century. I was a Moscow reporter. Mm. It was heaven. But I was also writing, you know, faster than I could type. <laughs> I mm. was da, 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 three mm. times a day. Sure. And no time to think. Right. So got lucky this way to do something where you could write, if not for the ages, then at least not for the 10 minutes that you were allotted. So when you have... But if I just would finish one point, no, Al, you asked me about, I don't want to give the impression that being the editor of the New Yorker is, a, is business all the time, but it, you just do, you have to pay attention to it. The pleasure of the job, the heaven of it, is somebody down the hall has read somebody who's 24 and puts in front of you his or her writing in some small magazine or on some website, and we decide to give her a shot and the piece comes in and this person has a whale of talent that's enormously gratifying. And you give them what kind of a piece to write? Well it depends on who they are there's a woman named Sarah Stillman for example who's in her, her mid-twenties and she'd written a few pieces here or there and every piece she has written for us now which maybe a half dozen she seems to, seems to win an award for it's it's. Amazing. She's got it. Or she's got it. Rachel Aviv or this guy, Patrick yeah. Keefe, who just did this yeah. piece on Jerry Adams. I was in touch with Rachel to try to get in touch with the woman who she talked about the uh, the adoption case out sure. in California. Sure. And I, and I did eventually email that woman because I wanted to get the rights to her story. I love Rachel's writing. She's terrific. Writing. And, you know, was... she hadn't, she had been in the, vo I guess she had been in the Village Voice. She had been here or there. She wasn't invisible. It's not like she's right out of the eighth grade or something. But that is, he, it's enormously gratifying at the other end. So Roger Angel is 94 years old. Imagine that. And he hands you a piece he's, that he's slyly been working on in which he's describing what it is to be old, what it is to lose your powers here and there, to experience the loss of his wife, who he certainly figured he would you know, go, go first. And yet, he's not through desiring 
His sexual desire is still there. <laughs> and he gets married again. And he writes the most astonishing piece on... A 94-year-old sex? About what it is to, to <laughs> desire it. And you don't stop. The sap is still in the tree. Weeks he comes of, from a great stock, oh, that angel. God, man. So when you have the magazine, obviously, one's assuming that there's, uh, you know, pieces that are three months out and six months out. You have many pots on many stoves cooking. And do you sometimes— I don't remember which pots are cooking where sometimes. I really don't. Right. Yeah, I'm sure there's you have a lot, lot going, going on. on. Yeah, I'm sure you have to yeah. do a lot going on, long lead that way. These pieces take months to write and so forth, or maybe longer. And do you, do you sit there and look at pieces and go, that's not a March piece. I don't want New Yorkers to read that in the dead of winter. I don't, you know, like, do you have a sense of how the magazine is put together on multiple levels? Yes. And you're, you know, there are lead pieces and then there are shorter pieces. Mm-hmm. And by, by New Yorker standards, a shorter piece is a 4,000-word piece. <laughs> you know, a profile, a longer piece can run 20,000 words. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are considerable things. And if you've delivered week after week of leads that are uh, ISIS or some grim piece of life, you need to have some sense of rotation. I mean, the the magazine is not the magazine if it doesn't have a sense of humor. You're not in business to depress the hell Mm -hmm. out of the reader unremittingly. Mm -hmm. It's like a band having a set list. If you do everything... It's all 16th notes from Enti. It's all in a gata de vida. Or, or, well, you sound like the Ramones, (laughs) although I've I've heard of worse things. (laughs) Boom, 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 boom. So you want some variation in tone, in voice. And that's your responsibility, you feel. I I feel all of it's my responsibility. You know, even the cartoons, you don't— But you choose. I do. So the way that's done is, is, is there's a cartoon editor that gets all these roughs. You've had Roz Chass come by. Roz will send in 10 roughs. And she's cooking with gas if one of them each week gets picked. That's the highest hit rate there can be. And she Ross, told us. And, and, and she's it. It's a hard way to make a living, and it's a hard way to be an artist. And even there, you want variety of voices. You want... They can't all be about frustrated men in bed right. with their, you know, non-giving <laughs> girlfriends or something. Or, or it can't all be... That de- de- That joke. Yeah. Can't all be desert islands or... Or even meta desert island jokes. You've got to have some sense of variety. I told you my favorite of all time. No. Gain Wilson had a fish in a suit. I think I told Roz this. And the fish is in a suit in an elevator. And a man is in the elevator. And the elevator doors had parted. And out there was a, an aquarium. There's water and bubbles and plant life and other fish. And the fish is turning to the man and says, I guess this is me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that was just my favorite cartoon in The New Yorker. I had it on my refrigerator for 20 years. I, I, and, you, you know, you get in to this kind of stuff. You, you forget that, that this, is, this is not the kind of job that most people have, picking cartoons for a living. And the other night, Esther and my wife, Esther and I have with three kids, and one of them has autism. And we go to this Night of Too Many Stars, which John Stewart and uh, Robert Smigel, and yeah. they do this amazing thing. And... I, you know, said to Esther, so what can we offer in the auction part? She said, well, you can auction off attendance at the cartoon meeting. I said, you know, the whole it lasts 25 minutes. You know, Robert Mankoff and I sit there, we make stupid jokes and we pick cartoons. How interesting can this be? $64,000 we get on the, on the auction. Two different people for $32,000 a piece want to be in this meeting. I don't know what the hell yeah. to do with them. I, I think I'm going to have to bring in entertainment in addition. They'll but take care of themselves. I yeah. hope so. They're happy I, to be there. I hope so. 
So when you're doing the the piece, you were talking about Sarah Stillman. Yeah. I look at the New Yorker and I think, you know, do you develop or do they we walk in to. ready? We have to. But they, but they, but this but, is this is the ethos of the magazine. In the in the early days, it's going to make you. It, it, it's, it's hysterical to 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 think it was true. But the big money makers for fiction writers way back when were short stories. So Hemingway. Fitzgerald, and to some extent, O'Hara. Uh, well, before O'Hara right. comes along, they're making their living on selling short stories to the Saturday Evening Post, to magazines like that. So the New Yorker comes along in 1925, and eventually, uh, Catherine White, Roger Angel's mother, is the fiction editor, and she's got to figure out, well, where can we make our bones? Well, we don't have the money to compete with the Saturday Evening Post and such magazines for for the big names, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, and so on. So we're going to discover new talent. So that became the ethos of the magazine. And they dis- she discovers, for example, living in a railroad flat in Chelsea, which used to be railroad flats, not the, you know, the buffed Chelsea that we know today, which is a, a you know, upper-middle-class neighborhood, John Cheever. Now, there's no question that now, because there is no Saturday Evening Post and the world has changed, that sometimes writers will come to us... And if not fully formed, that they're certainly getting there. Do you have an affiliation with any kind of university programs? Where you? No, we, we've we've done a farm system, so to speak. The farm system is the mail. Right. The farm right. system is whoever's sending us stuff. I, you know, people think I'm kidding around. People email me every day. I probably get fifteen emails a day that go directly to me because my email is not that hard to figure out, and. I have an idea. Here's my short story. This is da da da. Now, most of them are not going to work. We have a big staff. The pieces that come to me that way are not always masterpieces. Once in a while, though, it happens. And when you have people like that, Rachel, Aviv, and Liza, and Tad Friend, and all your mm-hmm. masthead, the, the, the uh, top writers in the, in, the, in the world, what's editing them like for you when you, when you edit? Because I am ignorant about this. When you edit them, you just sit there and say, well, you edit it for size. You say, well, let's lose this and let's do this. <laughs> That's right. you, don't, you don't go to Take them and it. say, this is a run-on sentence. That's, and you need a stronger you adjective here. You absolutely do. You do. You absolutely do. Every writer, look, John Updike, <laughs> editing John Updike, which I didn't, personally do, but, you know, you're presiding over various editors. and so He's about as perfectionist and handing it as close to what's appearing in the magazine as is possible to be. And then there's the other side of it. Different people do think different things. An investigative reporter is not necessarily a master of prose. That what you're shooting for there is, well, some of the could be better no, I writers. That. I just love that statement. Yeah, but... I'm- nor was John Updike capable of uncovering the Pentagon Papers. So yeah. it, what you're aiming for there is, is lucidity and clarity and, you know, a kind of organization where the story unfolds in the proper way. Your, your, your goal there is different. But each writer has different stuff that he or she is, you know, prone to. You know, as a writer, I taken too much time clearing my throat in the beginning of a piece and have, I hope have learned myself to get rid of a lot of the crap after finding the groove, after finding the rhythm, after finding what it is I want to say and where it wants to go. But very often my editor, Henry Finder, will just very quietly take a pen. He's your editor. Oh, yeah. That's who edits you. Oh, yeah, and he's great. 
He's unbelievable. You know, the way it works is I'll send him the piece. Now, I've been doing this for a while, too, but nevertheless, I'll send him the piece, and back will come an email, and the tone is very measured. Um, a lot of good stuff here. Yeah. A lot of good stuff here, which is a little bit of a way of saying there's some good things in your pockets, right? Perhaps some lint. Some lint as well. <laughs> uh, maybe old gum wrappers. Maybe we don't need the uh, old gum wrappers yeah. quite so much. We don't need these maybe, old Ricola. Maybe fewer gum wrappers. Mm-hmm. I know how to read this editor. I, he, we know each other for a long time. And I get the point. Out goes the gum wrappers. Out goes the bilge about you know Hillary Clinton's emails or wh- whatever the kind of extraneous crap of this first try is. I, and I, I got this from Barbara Epstein, who's an editor, the late Barbara Epstein at the New York Review of Books. I was really honored to be invited to write something from Russia for her. The assignment was about Boris Yeltsin's memoir. But obviously the piece was to write about Yeltsin and the Yeltsin phenomenon. And I got back what she called a biggie. What's a biggie? It was a gigantic galley sheet. And it was gigantic because there were so many comments about how much I had screwed up or had run off at the mouth or didn't explain sufficiently. And it was, you know, the signal that this process was going to take a little time. It's going to take a little time. And at The New Yorker, there are a lot of layers of editors. Not just, there's not just the editor that you have. There's also me kibitzing in the background. There are fact checkers. You've experienced this. And there are uh, copy editors and what's called okayers. And there used to be a woman named Eleanor Gould, Miss Gould, who would do her own proof. And she was like a super grammarian. And I swear to God, Alec, I, this is no lie, she once found four errors in a three-word <laughs> sentence. I will neither tell you who the writer was nor tell you the sentence, but it was the most stunning achievement, editorial achievement, um, since Hiroshima and John Hersey. It was amazing. I remember listening to, um, you know, as my day's always the same, I'm more of an NPR person than a New York Times person these days. You're being interviewed. And you talked about how your childhood, I guess I think it was your mother's illness. I tried to write this down, I forgive me, but I tried to remember how I think what you wrote about your mother was very ill when you were young, correct? She's still alive, yeah. She had got MS when I was a very small boy. And, and there's some comment you made about how that shaped the work you do. It was something about... I, it's more than the work you do, because the person you are, right? right? I, so I, I grew up in a house where my mother had MS, which, you know, was a kind of slow path downwards. Now what's called a burnt-out case. It stopped getting worse. So she's in a wheelchair, but she's, you know, she's 83 and, you know, okay. And my father was a dentist. He had a small dental practice. But by the time he was, he, I think he concealed it because I think he, the, the, the pressure on him to bring home the bacon and, although in our house, no bacon, um, was immense, and I, you know, his hand started shaking. To bring home the white fish. To bring home the white white fish, very expensive. Alec. Um, his hand started shaking, and clearly, this was, you know, if it wasn't so tragic, it would have been funny. It was like Buster Keaton, the yeah. Parkinsonian dentist. <laughs> and so, by the time he was in his early fifties, he had lost everything. So I, I 
had some sense that I was going to have to make a living as, as my brother. This is not this, I remember now you're saying this, yeah. And I, so I, you know, as a young guy, dreamed of being a, a novelist. But that, the notion that I just kind of set myself up to be a novelist, um, nobody was waiting for my novel. So I mm. got a job. I was very, very lucky and got a job at the Washington Post. I mean, that, that, that's a, from another world. world. Right out of college. Right out of Princeton. college. I did. What did you study? Well, what my I, it, the major was called comparative literature and what my father called fancy English. <laughs> <laughs> and you were supposed to know a couple of foreign languages well, and I knew Did you t- love Princeton? Two really b- well, you know, I grew up in a very different Jersey, right? And Princeton looked like a country club. Yeah. Goyesha Jersey. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Not even just. It was just... Beyond. Yeah, on Jupiter or something. And that part of it I didn't like. The intellectual part of it, this this sort of the pockets of people. Why that, Princeton, though? I'm assuming you could have gone anywhere. the best place I got in. Really? really? Yeah, I, no, I didn't get into a lot of places. But intellectually, I loved it, and I also got lucky in a few teachers, and that, that's the best thing that can happen to you at places like that. One of them was John McPhee, who taught writing and still teaches writing at Princeton. He's in his, I guess he's in his... He might be 80, 81, or something like that. Still teaches. And to this is what's very rare. You, you, when you're studying literature in, in college, you're studying with somebody who's a literary scholar or uh, a literary critic in the deepest sense. He was a practicing writer and talked about things that writers talk about, um, the mechanics of it, how you, the structure of it, how you break things down. So to, to have somebody concern with the practicalities and, and just to hear that language, that was life-changing. Your first job is the Washington Post? Yeah, which is, you know, preposterously lucky. Cops and sports. Cops. Cops. Cops uh, covering night police. I was the world's worst like Richard night... Price. Yeah, but he's great at it. What you did is you sat at a desk in the newsroom of the Washington Post and it was the night shift which began at 6. And I'd Washington work... back then. Yeah, I went to GW crack, for three years. Crack, yeah. Yeah. murder, yeah. and the the racial no breakdown wall of this. wall to wall carpeting was, in Washington was, back then. It was yeah. horrible. And 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 you would call the various cop shops around the city and the suburbs and the hospitals, and you'd say, "This is David Remnick of the Washington Post. Are there any crimes, fires, or accidents <laughs> I should know about?" That's what you'd ask every every forty five minutes. And the answer, usually by seven thirty, eight thirty, was yes. And then you jump in a car and go see some kid, invariably African-American, um, shot to death somewhere on you know, U Street or in Anacostia, and we'd publish two paragraphs. And there were people that are good at it and developed the stories and you didn't made care it better. For it. I wasn't all that great at it, and I was in a big fat rush to write with a capital W. And so what happened was I had this job, it was a temporary thing, and guy from the sports department said, you know anything about sports? Well, yeah. You know, I watched stuff on TV in the weekend and probably too much of it. And I, and I, I knew what this meant. It meant a job, a real job. And I said, yeah. And I became a sports writer for two how, years. How, how was that? Well, you, you didn't get the A-plus assignments right out of the bat, but you just ran around the country and covered any, you know, any game, any oh, they event. Had to travel oh my God! I was on oh. an airplane all the time. Oh, fantastic! And I, I covered boxing in a period when nobody cares about boxing. I covered something called the USFL, the United States Football sure. League, which was in the summer. Doug Flutie. 
Ah, huge. And this team that I had, it was all sort of NFL cast-offs, people who had aged out. You know, Coy Bacon would, you know, he'd been at the, I think he was a Ram or something, and then he washed up, you know, like an old horseshoe crab at the (laughs) USFL. (laughs) How awful. It, it was. I, I was the, what, what city is that? The horseshoe crabs. Oh my god! Yeah, exactly. They should have had a team. Right, right. The in Trenton Maryland. horseshoe crabs. Yeah. <laughs> Ours was the Washington Federals. Craig James was the big star. He was a running back. Came from SMU, and he's. It was a. It was a. It was grim, but fun. David Remnick moved from sports to the style section, and then in 1988 he took a very different job as a Moscow correspondent. More on that coming up. Listen to other episodes of Here's the Thing in our archives, like my conversation with Chris Columbus, the director of Home Alone, among other films. He, like Remnick, got a big break early on. A friend had suggested he write something about monsters. So I spent the next six weeks writing the script called Gremlins, and I sent it to my agent who um, liked the script but felt it was a little dark and still sent it to about 50 producers, and everyone passed on it. And Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, was leaving his office on a Friday and passed the script and saw the title. Said, oh, that looks interesting. Picked it up, read it that weekend, and decided he wanted to option the movie. Now, I didn't know this. I got a call at my loft. I get the phone and he goes, Chris, it's Steven Spielberg. I was stunned. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. 
Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker magazine. In 1988, he and his wife moved to Moscow to cover Russian politics for rival papers. He for The Washington Post and she for The New York Times. And while they found themselves in the whirlwind drama that was the dissolution of the Soviet Union, it wasn't a popular post at that time. Nobody else wanted to go. It's cold. It's miserable. Well, why do you think that is? I have no idea. No one was clamoring for that job? Well, look, you, you've probably been to Moscow since it's changed. I don't know if you, you were there before no. money started showing up. It, 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 when my wife and I got to Moscow in 1988, the very beginning of 88, and, and Glasnost and Perestroika and Gorbachev were now well underway, there, uh, food shops said really attractive things like bread. That's what the yeah. shop would say. And there was no bread in it. Right. Or producti, meaning groceries. And there were none of those either. It was really uh, um, stark. I loved it. Mm. People wanted to talk to us for the first time in decades, us meeting the tribe of journalists. They wanted to talk. And you were there for how long? Four years. They wanted to talk about books. They wanted to Did talk about Did you come back this. often or very rarely? I was. I lived there. No, I mean, did you travel back to the United States from, or you're there for nah, four years? Maybe, maybe, you basically were there. Maybe we came back once a year. Were any of your children born during that the, time? The, the first child spent his first year there, really? and and yeah, and and we. I have pictures of him. He's now 24. You know, in a big, giant, old-fashioned pram that we put out on the little teeny balcony. It looks like we lived in Co-op City or something. It was kind of sturdy. We're off to go get bread and producti. Producti, yeah, and and. We would wrap him up in blankets with just his little nose, <laughs> and plumes of steam would come up into the winter Moscow air. And his first words were, Varona litit, the crow is flying. Okay. <laughs> Very smart boy. Doesn't know a word of Russian now. So you come back after four years to do what? Well, I had thought, I had, we had thought and we had discussed the possibility of Nen going in the Middle East. It's what foreign correspondents do. You Go to the next place. And it's what foreign correspondents, by the way, talk about all the time. The next place. Uh-huh. And I came home, and it was very clear that my father's health had degenerated. And the next place was going to be New York. There's just no going away. Family. Family. It'd be family. Yeah. And um, so... What year is this? So this is 91-2. Is Tina in charge of the magazine then? 
So this is what happened. Tina took over the magazine from Bob Gottlieb, and I had written exactly one story for The New Yorker, one, and one story for Vanity Fair for Tina. And I get called, will you please have lunch with Miss Brown at the Four Seasons? I get there, and I don't think I'd even met her before. If I had, it was for two seconds in the office. And she was still editor of Vanity Fair, and all she talked about was The New Yorker. And as they say in Monty Python, I may be stupid, but I'm no idiot. And I thought, something's up here, but I, I didn't quite figure it out. And then two months later, she became the editor of The New Yorker and asked me to come right there. And, and I was a very happy camper. Which dead New Yorker writer do you wish you had met and worked with? A.J. Liebling. Uh-huh. So A.J. Liebling... Yeah, A.J. Liebling, I think. A.J. Liebling was this Rebelazian, enormously fat gourmand who literally dug his own grave with his teeth. He ate himself to death and enjoyed life, if, if his prose can be believed, immensely. I don't like the early kind of, you know, telephone booth Indian stuff where I think he's kind of making it up half the time and it's not and it it feels jokey and dumb and comes from old world telegram feature writing style stuff but what I love is the stuff about the second world war uh his boxing writing he's the best mm-hmm. sports writer along with Roger Angel I can I can even conceive of um, his his work about Paris, about food, um, is just enormously warm. And I, I liked his lucky attitude about writing. He loved to be doing it. People would come into the office late at night, no air conditioning at the New Yorker in those days, and this 340-pound guy would be stripped to the waist, typing and laughing at his own jokes. Mr. Creosote. <laughs> That is, and that's the, not the normal bearing of your average writer. Mostly there's a, there's a certain self-lacerating or lacerated feel to writing, a sense of suffering, a sense that this work is... Why do you think is, that is? Well, I think, first of all, writing's really hard. It's really no, I'm, hard. I just sold my memoir to HarperCollins. Now you have to write the damn thing. Well, I wrote one book about my critique of the California family law system. So I wrote that book, and then I, um, I'll tell you this quickly, because I, I went to go to the, uh, at the big synagogue on Fifth Avenue, I went to go to... Um, Temple Emanuel. I went to Temple Emanuel to read for uh, uh, the, the Library of America release for Roth, mm-hmm. and the producers of the event put me in touch with Roth, and I call Roth on the phone. Uh, it was a Manhattan number. It was a little place in the city, I guess, and I get him on the phone. And he said, I'm very sorry. I don't think I'm going to be able to come because I'm not feeling... No, he said, I wanted to thank you for coming and uh, for doing this and doing the reading. It was myself and two other actors. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I just wanted to say thank you. I said, my God, I'm so touched. And I'm with the great Philip Roth. So I hang up. I do the event. He emails me and says, um, uh, I heard you were wonderful. And again, I wanted to thank you by email. So I email him back and I go, oh, you'll have to forgive me. I'm sorry. I said, I'm going to write a memoir. I want to write a fictional memoir. I want to have my character, you know, Joe Sweeney go through life, and everything that happens to me happens to Joe Sweeney, but I'm going to transpose this and do this. And if you saw, I have it in my phone, if you saw the email he sent me back, and all of his emphasis in capitals when he wanted to be, he said, first of all, there is no such thing as a fictional memoir. 
For mm-hmm. second of all, you must spare no one, he says, especially yourself. <laughs> and he gives me this. That's the career. You know, we all read memoirs because either for a salacious reason or we want the gossip or we want to we like that person or we admire or fear or something that person we want to get the story but on the occasions that it becomes like a real book act one <laughs> or uh, I, loved, I loved loitering with intent terrific book, terrific book. But they they take you by surprise. That was the thing. That was the experience with Patti Smith. I mean, I I love and love her as a musician and as a songwriter. Or or Dylan's Chronicles. You know, I I grew up with that book Tarantula, which was this, you know, kind of affected surrealism. But I because I so revered him, I memorized it the way rabbis memorize passages of the Talmud. But it made no sense whatsoever. And I, you know, as an editor, went to read. Chronicles, um, with the hopes of excerpting it, which is a long story. And boy, that's a real book. It's a terrific, honest book. And that's, by the way, and that's Roth's whole thing, is just unsparing honesty. That's, that's the career. That's at the center of everything about that writer. What's a profile you were hoping you'd be able to do or that the magazine was able to do that's eluded you? Well, when I was growing up, everything I cared about culturally came from one person. It came from my obsession with Bob Dylan. Obsession. My parents sent me to a yeshiva for kindergarten because I was ready to go to school, but the public school wouldn't have me yet. I was too young. So I would go with these older boys in a van to Patterson, New Jersey, to a yeshiva called the Yavna. And they they started talking about these Beatles. I was really young, six or seven. Beatles, this guy Bob Dylan, and so I bought my first album a year or so later called The Best of 66, and it contained the song I Want You. Now, I was pretty young. I had no idea what that song was about. (laughs) Desire, whatever. No idea. But something, something magical entered my brain. The combination of the language, the music, the excitement, the cool, the fact that he was named Zimmerman probably had no small amount to do with it. All of that. So that everything that I started to care about was because he mentioned it. Oh, there's this thing called the Beat Poets. So I started reading Allen Ginsberg. Oh, there's this thing called Rambo. I started, without any comprehension at all, reading Rambo's The Drunken Boat or something like that or Elvis, or ev- all my cultural um, interests came from that hub, from that hub. And it was maybe unhealthy, but it, you know, got me, gave me a brain. It, st- it started the... the uh, curiosity. Curiosity in, in many, many directions, and of, at very much of a time. So I always wanted to do a profile of him, and... One fine day, I get a call. I'm now the editor of The New Yorker. Bob has actually written his book, Chronicles. Great. And he wasn't offering. There was no profile in the offer. I'd love to read it. Send it, he said, because that's what happens. People send you a PDF or they send you a manuscript and you read it and you promise not to give it to anybody. He said, no, 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 no. Uh, we can't send you the book. You have to come to the Dylan office. Now, there's, a, there's an office downtown it's like a CIA front. Press the button that says da da da. Obviously, it doesn't say anything about Dylan. You go up six flights, whatever, and you go into this huge office, and it was like, it was like erotica. 
for me, right? Mm-hmm. It's just nothing but Dillian Aini, Dil- Dylan's stuff, yeah. his albums, his you T-shirts, were in his Monroe's lingerie exactly. closet. Exactly. <laughs> and they sit, sat me in a little room, smaller than this, with the manuscript, with a bare table, and I read it. it took me about three three hours. I said, "I'll do it." How many thousand? And the book is terrific. I don't know if you read it, but it's really good. I will now. Oh, you should. And and he wrote it. And he did write it. He and didn't unmistakably. Unmistakably. Is he a good writer? He's him. (laughs) He's him. Isn't that enough? (laughs) He starts the book, you know, coming to New York, a whole child, nothing about that. Then as soon as you get to the point where he's going to write those unbelievable, what he calls his own golden period, he skips that and he goes to the 80s where he's screwing up and he's, he's sick of his own sound of his own voice. It's a wildly interesting book, the way he chooses to tell his stories. He's, he's, he's now in a stage of his life, he wants possession of his own narrative, but in a very Dylan-esque way. I come to an agreement with the publisher, but I don't, make, I don't sign a contract because we had a handshake agreement. And it comes the summer right before publication. So I call the publisher and I say, okay, we're ready to go. Um, you know, what week should we do it? We had agreed what, which 5,000 words to do. It's Dylan's arrival in New York. He had basically hitched to come to arrive in New York and he starts singing at Gertie's Folk City and becomes himself. He said, there's one problem. Bob wants a cover. I said, what? I, I said, we, we don't have covers. This is in Rolling Stone or Life magazine in the 70s or I'm something. Not Graydon. We, we, have, we have these funny drawings on the cover. He said, well, the long pause, Bob wants a cover. I said, you told me Bob loved the magazine. He said, yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, what's going on here? He said, well, if there's no cover, we're going to give it to Newsweek. <laughs> I, yeah, I said, well, we had an agreement. He said, Long pause meaning, and you could have translated, we don't have a contract. Could Barry Blit of his day had somebody walking down the street carrying a Dylan album in, in their hand? In, in retrospect, I probably should have caved like that. And I dug in my heels, and the next thing you know, the Dylan appeared on the cover of Newsweek. And, you know, at this point, he looks like David, he, he looks like, um, I don't know, he looks like Vincent Price playing a cowboy, yeah. right, with that kind of pencil mustache and, and so on. And I lost it. Something out of a David Lynch movie. And I, I you know, I don't have a bad temper, but I, I, I kind of flipped out. And Dylan's guy, very nice guy named Jeff Rosen, calls me and he says, um, we'd like you to he- come hear the new Dylan album. Nobody's heard it. I thought, God, come on. What am I, nine years old here? Yes, I will come because I can't resist. And I go down to the studio on 10th Avenue and I'm put in a room and they play the album, which had yet to be released, called Love and Theft. Okay, great. So I don't know what to do next. The album ends. So I, I really liked it. I would love to have heard it again. And I come out of the room, and there he is. There's Dylan. I, I thought, oh, God. I don't know. I, what am I going to do here? And he, he comes up. He's saying, yeah, I read your book about Muhammad Ali. And, I, I, and, he's, and he's, he's acknowledging my presence in the universe. And we have this kind of awkward five-minute, six-minute conversation. I didn't have a stopwatch. And that was it. That was my encounter with Bob Dylan. And, and, th- and I'm not sure I'm glad it happened either because it, it kind of pierced the mythological aspect of it. He was perfectly, I don't know if polite is the word, but he was himself. Mm-hmm. He's a cipher. 
he's not he's anything but he's not really? a cipher there's 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 just I mean, a I mean, huge I mean, I mean, he is a cipher but he can appear to be when he's dealing with people he doesn't know just I mean, Alec, I, God, I can't even imagine what it is to be you, much less this guy who, ever since he's 21 years old, people he think matters. he's a deity. Yeah. He has a, like a minor motorcycle accident. It was like the earth spun off its right. axis. And it's been like that since he's 21 years old. He's now in his, his 70s. So everybody that comes up to him all day long wants to tell him the obvious, he changed my life. Blah, blah, blah. Sure. And so I determinedly did not do that, but was suitably respectful and but i the conversation i don't know that whether it felt like one second or three and a half hours right. it was very very strange it was the same with mccartney when you were when you're on long island and mccartney's out and about and people will walk but up but he's to him very and, personable right he's, he's, he's very he's sweet very, oh no he's very warm and but, but people start crying like a like a 40 year old woman will right. start sobbing you have no idea but he and probably you, puts his arm around and says oh, oh he dearie. does he's like yeah Where's I, Bob? I understand, he says. <laughs> he hugs him. But my favorite thing with Bob McCartney. Bob would walk in the other direction. Sure. Like a lot of them. You know, when I think of you and your work, and, you know, this is just my characterizing it, you know, your DNA is so strongly political. And we live in this, you know, national security state, this post-9-11 mm-hmm. world, and the government and secrecy, and what it's like to cover politics today. And is it frustrating for you? It's very very. I, I compare it to Roger Angel's description of covering baseball. When he was young, you could get up next to the ball players, and ball players had some sense of who you were. And there were casual relationships, particularly in spring training. He used to go down to spring training for weeks and just yammer with these guys. And they, you know, they were rich because they made $150,000, $125,000. Derek Jeter no more needed to talk to a reporter than he needed to dress up like a chicken. Mm-hmm. I, it just it didn't occur to him. So it became harder. Politics, to cover a campaign now, you the campaign bus, I think it's well portrayed in the newsroom where basically it's, it's, um, it's very, very young people filing from the bus every five minutes. Mm-hmm. It's not interesting. Mm-hmm. Or it's, it's interesting, but it's radically different. Um, it, it's hard for me as a writer to get interested as a profile writer. If I, if I, if somebody says, "Well, we'll give you twenty-five minutes in, a, in such and such a hotel room, and you're not allowed to ask this, that, or the other," it's just nonsense. It's crap. We're about to enter. It's really interesting. We're about to enter a political race in which the main character is the most disciplined person in history when it comes to the press, Hillary Clinton. And I think most of my readers, or a lot of my readers, are not facing the dilemma, do I vote for Hillary Clinton or do I vote for a right-wing Republican or, or center-right Republican, if there is such a thing? Mm-hmm. It's how do I feel about Hillary Clinton? On the one hand, it is now decades and decades and decades past time when a woman should be in the White House. There's a New York Times piece... I don't know, yesterday I think it was, about the preposterous levels of violence against women. Rape, sexual aggression, sexual violence, countries where it's legal to beat your wife. It just, and that's just the beginning of it. Say nothing of economic unfairness. It's just, it it, it is so long past time. And on the other hand, you know, her other qualities are also manifest. We may well forget about this email mm-hmm. piece of business, but it revives um, 
dilemmas that you have about this Mm -hmm. and how to write about this when she really, you know, you're dealing with both her and a press machine that is beyond disciplined. And I understand why. I know what it comes out of. It comes out of many things, not least the the um, the whole uh, impeachment, Monica Lewinsky uh, drama, uh, is is dispiriting. David Remnick was highly critical of Hillary's press conference to address her use of private email and a secret server. It's one thing for a politician to be stupid, which Hillary is not. He told ABC's This Week, it's quite another for a politician to believe that we're stupid. The fast-writing David Remnick will be following the upcoming election carefully. Go to newyorker.com for his latest work. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 